The term glory refers to the visible splendor or moral beauty of God's manifold perfections. The glory of God is an exhibition of his inherent excellence. It is the external manifestation of his internal majesty. To glorify God is to declare, draw attention to, or publicly announce and advertise his glory. The last sermon that I preached here was back on March 12th, not that long ago. It was the God of patience, peace, and comfort. And I concluded it with a statement about the patience and the comfort of the scriptures filling the hurting and hungering soul with hope. So we are in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, and Paul was referring to the Old Testament scriptures, we might have hope. And I concluded the message by referencing Romans 15, 13. The hope that we have as believers is an abounding hope. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament, Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now the, the hope, this abounding hope that we have in our hearts as Christians is mediated to us by the Holy Spirit of God. In John fourteen fifteen, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper or comforter that he might abide with you forever. That helper, that comforter, is the Holy Spirit of God. He's the paraclete. He's come alongside us. He is indwelling us. And you can see in Romans 15, 13, the end of the verse, now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. How? By the power, by the indwelling power that God supplies to you and to me through the Holy Spirit of God. We have a real hope. And the hope that we have as Christians will ultimately be fulfilled when we are with the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Do you know that Paul referenced the word hope 15 times in the book of Romans? 1 Peter 5.1, the Apostle Peter says, The elders who are among you I exhort, who am a fellow older elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also, he says, a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Well, how could Peter be a partaker of the glory if it hasn't yet been revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration? He went up on the Mount there, Peter, James, and John, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he pulled the curtain back. He, he took the veil off, and they saw before they would go into the presence of the Lord forever, a glimpse of the glory of God. That's, a, that's an amazing thing. When Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian era in Acts chapter 7, when he was dying for Christ, the Bible says he gazed into heaven. You want to talk about a heavenly vision? 
I don't know what captures your attention on earth. But he gazed into heaven. And the Bible says that he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God to welcome him home. Hallelujah. This is, this is where we are going. This is the hope that transcends all kind of the, the, the weak hopes of men. Romans 8.25 says, If we hope for what we do not see, because we don't see it presently, the glory of God, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, perseverance is the hard part, right? It's wonderful to have that hope in our heart. But perseverance through the daily struggles of life, through the mundane things of life, is a difficult thing. Look at Colossians 1 and verse 3. Again, setting this hope before us. Colossians 1, if you have your Bible, verse 3. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we hope we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. I mean, you can mark that down. The hope that we have is laid up. It's stored up for us in heaven. When God will give us to all the things that he's promised to give us as believers. Peter says it's reserved there. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It's, it's reserved in heaven for you. Wow, that's wonderful. Well, what's the fruit of hope? Well, we've already looked at this. It's joy. Romans 12.10 says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. This should be the daily task of the Christian. Rejoicing in hope. Hope brings joy. It brings patience in tribulation. It causes us... Paul says in Romans 12 there to continue steadfastly in prayer, not to give up, not to shrink back. So joy, perseverance, and prayer come from hope. And the Christian, like the pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, he keeps pressing on toward the heavenly city because because we are filled with hope. You know, the pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, the burden was laid down at the cross. The burden of his sin that he was carrying was laid down at the cross, but he still faced the struggles on his journey toward the heavenly city, right? And that's what, that's what we're, we're all doing. We're pilgrims journeying to, toward the heavenly city. And what keeps us moving forward and pressing on? Hope, biblical hope. The hope that is reserved in heaven for us which will one day be completely fulfilled when we see Jesus. Now people who do not have a biblical hope, listen to me, people without a true hope grounded in scripture live in delusion, denial, or despair. That's one of the three things that they live in. Delusion, denial, or despair. 
Biblical hope is the oxygen of the human spirit. Take away hope from a person and they are dead while they are still living. They are lifeless. They're just going through the motions of life. They're trying to find joy in all of the wrong places. So then it's no surprise that suicide is the second leading cause of death among people between the ages of 15 through 24. Did you know that? Suicide. That's here in the United States. It's even higher in other countries. As they turn away from God, people turn away from God, they abandon hope. And with that, they have no expectation of seeing and sharing in the glory of God. When the Christian dies, they're taken into God's presence. They're surrounded by His glory and His majesty. What could, what could ever be better than that? Nothing. Nothing in this world. So the heaven-bound believer, he longs for that. That's the ultimate satisfaction. That's the ultimate joy. That's the ultimate fulfillment, being with Jesus and seeing the glory of God. So the title of this message is The Glory of God. And I could have titled it, maybe should have titled it, The Hope of the Glory of God, because that's what we have. Now let me say at the outset that it would take an an endless amount of messages to cover the topic of the glory of God because it is nothing, nothing, or it is something, I should say, that no, no human being can fully understand. We cannot, with mortal eyes and with the minds that we have, even as informed as they are by Scripture, we cannot comprehend the glory of God. Could you, could you just... Stop for a moment and think of what it will be like when you are ushered into the presence of God. The thrice holy God. The majestic God. And you see Him as you have never ever comprehended Him before. And you see the glory that attends His throne. It's an amazing thing that's yet future. But mankind was created for God's glory. You know, people say, "Why am I? where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Why am I here? You, were, you are here to bring glory to God. That's what you are here for. You are not here to oh, find the ideal mate in life and raise a family and make money and do all of these other kinds of things. That comes in the process of why you are here, if that's what God has called you for. But you are here for the glory of God. And God may call you to some difficult things so that you can bring glory to Him. The difficulty of the losses of life, the difficulty of suffering... Some of you have experienced this. Everybody will experience this in time as a Christian. I shared with the class today, and because it just has so gripped me, Jeremiah the prophet. You know, God called him to his prophetic ministry when he was about 20 years old. Anybody here 20 years old? Close to it? <laughs> Let God be true and every man a liar. <laughs> All right, 20 years old. 20 years old. Jeremiah. 
here's what I want you to do. Nice young 20-year-old man. I want you to go to this nation. You're going to see the death of this nation. You are never going to marry. You're going to have only three friends. And nobody is going to listen to you. And your message isn't going to be the power of positive thinking. It's going to be judgment is coming. And it's irreversible. Now, Jeremiah, go do it. And you know what he did? And in doing it, he brought glory to God. So it doesn't matter, matter, young people, if you marry or you don't marry. That's not the ultimate goal of life. It's whether you will bring glory to God in your marriage or outside of marriage if God calls you to singleness or whatever it is. Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We read this morning, the heavens declare the glory of God. Why does the, the creation exist? To bring glory to God. And you, as part of God's creation, the apex of God's creation, the crown jewel of God's creation, you were created to bring glory to God. That's what he says. Are you? Am I? You know, when people refuse to worship God, or in the language of today, they deconstruct their faith. That's the big terminology now, if you haven't heard it. People who are Christians deconstructing their faith and becoming atheists. Well, I, I want to tell you, they do not cease to be worshipers. They end up worshiping something in place of God. You can go back in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23 and check it out. Because when they knew God, see, see, there's no true atheist. When they knew God, they refused to worship Him as God. Therefore, God gave them up and they began to worship creatures in the creation. When men reject God or refuse to worship God, they're still worshipers. They're just worshiping other things. God in the machine. This is, this is an article. And here it is. And I'm going to read you the quote as he follows this along. By Neil MacArthur out of Canada, University of Manitoba, professor, professor of ethics. God in the machine. The title is, The Rise of Artificial Intelligence May Result in New Religions. Published March 15th. 2023, right up to date. We are about to witness the birth of a new kind of religion. In the next few years or perhaps even months, we will see the emergence of sects devoted to the worship of artificial intelligence. It's already happening. AI. This is the worship of the creature rather than the creator. Friends, this is where technology is headed. Yeah. Artificial intelligence that 
that mimics in, in the, re, the, the words of this author as you read the, art, the article further. It, it mimics deity. It has instant knowledge. It can direct. And even many instances compel. This is where we're going. So what is the relation between the glory of God and Romans 15? Well, it begins in verse 5. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ that you may with one mind and with one mouth, what? Glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to what? The glory of God. So there's the connection. This is Paul's final pastoral epistle for unity in the book of Romans, which was a divided church. The emperor Claudius of Rome, he expelled all the Jews from Rome in 49 AD. About six years later, 54 AD, they began to trickle back in. But at that time, the house churches with all the Jewish believers gone, the house churches were run by Gentiles. And Gentiles were in the majority. So you could just imagine the friction that developed in that situation. So Fred Thielman writes, the church was experiencing disunity over the extent to which Jewish practices carried over into Christianity. And that's what we see here in Romans chapter 14. Some of these Jews were, were saying, well, we can't eat meat. We can't eat certain types of meats. They needed to hear the unifying message of the gospel again and to understand the implications of the gospel for the way that they treated each other. Listen, we all know really clearly for the most part what the gospel is, but do we comprehend and practice the implications of the gospel in how we treat one another? Right? In this church, wherever we are, in our homes, what are the implications of the gospel in how you treat your children? How you treat your, your, your parents' children? How you treat your husband? How you treat your wife? How you treat the person working next to you at work? The gospel has implications pertaining to how we should live. Now, so in this section, Paul concludes what he began in chapter 14 in verse 1. And this final appeal for unity comes in the form of prayer. Notice verse 5. May the God of patience and comfort grant you. That's prayer language. This is a prayer. What are you praying for, Paul, for these believers in Rome who are divided over different things? I pray to God that he would answer this prayer so that you would be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ. He mentions patience and comfort in this verse, which are actually repeated from verse 4. God provides perseverance and comfort. Patience and comfort. Patience is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. What? 
patience or long-suffering. You can call it patience, endurance, perseverance, long-suffering. It's all the same thing. God, God brings that about through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness. The fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So God provides patience through the Holy Spirit. God supplies comfort through the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.3, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of what? All comfort. Not just comfort. All comfort. All comfort comes from God. If you as a believer comfort someone else, that comfort is coming through you from God to somebody else. Who comforts us in, what does it say? All our tribulations. He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulations that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble or tribulation with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is one of the reasons why suffering, as much as we distake distaste suffering in this world is so necessary because through your trials tribulations and sufferings god will use you to comfort somebody else it always works that way always works that way you are a a mouthpiece for god to people who are going through difficult times to comfort them And you know what goes around comes around, right? In a good sense. Because when you need comfort, God, thank you for the brother and sister in Christ who will just come up to me and put their hand on my shoulder and say something from the Scripture. Giving me the comfort of the Word of God. There is nothing like it. John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's necessary for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. That's the indwelling paraclete, the Holy Spirit of God. So it's not surprising then that Christian unity is mediated by the Holy Spirit who indwells all believers both the Jewish believers here in Rome and the Gentile believers. He comforts them. He helps them to persevere. He brings them joy. And he is the one who brings unity. Listen, comforting somebody isn't just telling them, uh, keep your head up, right? It's sharing the comfort of the scriptures with them. It's sharing with them how God has worked in your life in difficult circumstances. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul wrote about one of the mysteries of our faith. And a lot of people think, well, it's a mystery. And there are things we don't know, but Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, you know, there are things that have also been revealed to us. So a mystery in the Bible is something that was hidden in the past time, but it was revealed at a certain time. And one of the mysteries of the faith that was hidden in the past, in the Old Testament era, was the mystery of the union of Jewish believers and Gentile believers in one body. One body. 
Bible says that it was revealed, that mystery, to the Apostle Paul and the prophets. In the dispensation, the dispensation that we call the church age, and the church age began on the day of Pentecost. God was doing a new thing when he established the church on the day of Pentecost. Draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Look what it says. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's an incentive to pray. According to the power that works in us through the Holy Spirit of God. To him, what does it say? Be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Now, this glory of God in the church belongs to Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. The only head of the church, the Bible says. So we're in the church age. We're a local church. We're to bring glory to God. This is the dispensation or the era of the local church or the church age. In 1965... Theologian Charles Ryrie wrote a book called Dispensationalism Today, in which he listed three essential elements that he called the sin qua non of dispensationalism. Am I trying to mix you up? No. And dispensationalism is a big word, right? Sin qua non, you know? What are essential elements? That's all it means. All right, so here, let me give you a definition of dispensationalism. Reynolds showers. By the way, Reynolds, Randy, he's home with the Lord now, but he shared with us and did a Bible conference here. Tobias shaking his head was wonderful. Took us through the whole unfolding plan of God's redemption for mankind in about three days. Dispensational theology can be defined very simply as a system of theology. Everybody has a system of theology, whether they recognize it or not, which attempts to develop the Bible's philosophy of history on the basis of the sovereign rule of God, or working of God, it re- represents the whole of Scripture in history as being covered by several dispensations or eras of God's rule. But what do we simply mean by a dispensation when we say I'm a dispensationalism is that dispensationalism is the way, distinct ways that God worked in the world. We're no longer under the Mosaic law, Right? That was the dispensation of the law. We're now under grace. So it's simply a way in which God chose to work at a particular time for his glory in the unfolding drama or plan of his redemption. Ryrie, the synchronon, the essential elements of dispensationalism, he says, number one, a dispensationalist consistently keeps Israel and the church separate. Covenant theology joins them. They, they believe that the church has replaced Israel. No. When Paul talks about Israel in the New Testament, he's not talking about the church. He is talking about Israel. It's very clear. Number two, a dispensationalist, dispensationalist consistently employs a literal System of hermeneutics. Wow, big words. Dispensationalist. Hermeneutics. Well, you know what dispensationalism means now? Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just the science of interpreting the Bible. 
That's all it is. From the Greek god Hermes, who was, who was viewed as the interpreter of the gods. So, back that up. Yeah, I don't think I finished that, right? A dispensation consistently employs a rule system of hermeneutics, which means normal or plain interpretation. Now, let's explain this. What do we mean by literal, normal, plain Bible interpretation? This is from Dr. David Cooper. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths, indicate clearly otherwise. So we're literalists, but we're not strict literalists. If Jesus says, I am the door, I am the vine, and so forth, we don't take that literally. We know he's speaking metaphorically. And the Bible uses figures of speech, and the Bible uses metaphors. And I was telling the class this morning that the book of Jeremiah is an amazing book because it's a book of doom, and yet it's written in beautiful poetry in many many areas. It's a poetic biography. So languages, knowing, knowing the, the terminology of these things and, how, and what God is doing in, in using picturesque language to convey truth to us. We don't ignore that. We understand that. We recognize that. But when God says Israel, he means Israel. I mean, there are things that are just literal, and, and you can't change it. So then the third point here is a dispensationalist, and this is it, believes that the underlying purpose, the underlying purpose of the world and God's creation of the world, as we saw in Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, is the glory of God. This is why he created all things. And by the way, this third principle is the unifying principle of dispensationalism. In other words, the glory of God is what all of history is moving toward. You realize that? You were created to bring God glory. You took your first breath as a human being in this world. You came to faith in Christ. And everything from that point on, God even using your past, was intended to bring God glory. And you are, in your life, moving toward the ultimate fulfillment and purpose of your life when you see Jesus and the glory of God. Romans 11.36 For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Of Him Through him, to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. That's the ultimate purpose of all things. You know this present world? (laughs) Look, this whole thing saved the planet. I'm all for conservation. Christians are to be good stewards of God's creation. It's going to blow up. 
That's the truth. I don't care how much you can serve. One day it's gone. The Bible says God is going to burn this whole present world up and it's going to be replaced with a new heavens and a new earth to the glory of God. The eternal state. God provides the means through which Christians can be like-minded. Look at verse 5. Now may the God of patience and peace or patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. Well, the mediator who brings this about is none other than guess who? The Holy Spirit of God. Just as he brings us joy, comfort, perseverance and hope Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore the prisoner of the Lord, I, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And here's what he says. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it's the, the Spirit of God who brings unity. Now, he says, I, I pray that, that you would be like-minded, right? In Romans 15, 5 or 6. Like-minded is not thinking exactly alike. Unity is not uniformity. It's not believers who all look alike, dress alike, talk alike, act alike, and have the same likes and dislikes. That's not unity. Peter, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, your wives, with understanding. And I know what you're thinking. I've been married 30 years and I still don't understand my wife. Right? That's not the understanding it's talking about. It's God's understanding of how he made them. Dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to your wife as a weaker vessel, don't have time to get into that. It's not all that you might think it is. But here's the key point. As being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers would not be hindered. And then he says in 1 Peter 3, 8, Finally, all of you, not just husbands, to their wives, be of one mind having compassion one for another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, accusation for accusation, insult for insult, but on the contrary, blessing. So if someone says something mean to you, you are to respond with kindness, with a blessing, not with meanness. So what is like-minded? I think I put this on your notes. Like-minded is being united toward the same goals or purpose, sharing the same convictions on the essentials of the faith, working together despite our differences and bearing with the stronger or weaker brother. It is all of us valuing the things that Peter said there in 1 Peter 3. Compassion, love, tenderheartedness, courtesy, forgiveness, returning good for evil. 
So this is what he's saying to the church. All of you, practice this in the church. Now, I want to tell you, if it works in the church, it'll work in the home. So the same thing here, what I just read about being like-minded. Think of your home. Think of your dear family. Are we working for the same goals? Do we have the same convictions on the essentials of the faith? Are we willing to work together despite some of our differences? Do we bear with one another as a stronger or weaker brother needs to do at times? Do we value the things that Peter mentioned? Are we compassionate toward one another? Are we loving toward one another? Are we tenderhearted toward one another? Are we courteous toward one another? Are we forgiving toward one another? Are we returning good for evil? Because, listen, in any human relationship, you're not going to keep, you're not going to keep the standards of God perfectly. You still have that old nasty sin nature. And it's hard to return good for evil, right? Remember the story of hell's angel, at least I heard about this. Hell's angel got converted and he went back to witness to his gang members and his gang members said, so this Christianity thing, doesn't Jesus say if I slap you on one side of the face, you're, you're to give me your other side? He says, yeah, it says that. He says, well, are you going to do that? He says, brother, I am going to really try. But if my old flesh gets in the way, I'm going to take you outside and wipe the street up with you. (laughs) Now, you, you you get the gist of what he's saying. That's the that's the battle that we face. The willing and the doing are two different things. They're hard. I just Philippians 2.1 therefore if there's any consolation in Christ any comfort of love any quote capitalized here fellowship of the spirit if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being what? like minded having the same love Notice that he's just saying the same thing here in different ways. Having the same love. Being of one accord. Of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, which, by the way, is the root sin in a marriage and life. Fueled by pride. Mark it down. Self-ambition. My wishes before your wishes, or maybe even what's best for the church or the family. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, that's humility, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look not only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Now, this is what Paul prayed for to be seen in the church of Rome Because he says it fulfills the will of Christ. Romans 15.5 May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ. That's what God wills. God wants our church to be like-minded as we defined it. He wants you in your home, your family, husband, wife, Children, to be like-minded. Practicing the same things. Because he says that this is what brings glory to God, that in verse 6, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God the Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the same? God is glorified in the church and in the home when there is unity. Biblical unity. Fulfilling the will of Christ. Now what does that mean? It means in in this practical application in Romans 15 that striving for unity means accepting those who differ on non-essentials. Meat and vegetables was the example. So he says in verse 7, Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to what? The glory of God. Unity is about bringing glory to God. And if you think of it that way, your home life will change. Your marriage will change. Churches will change. What does receive mean? It means to welcome. To take, one, to, to, take to oneself. To join with. The Bible says in John 1.12, as many as received him, what did he do? He welcomed them. As, as many who as received the gospel and obeyed it in faith, put their faith and trust in Christ, Jesus received them. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those that believe in his name. So this is what it means to, to receive someone, to welcome them, to be joined together with them. I want to put a picture up here. Recognize it? That's not a crepe myrtle. You know what those trees are? What are they? They're sequoias. This is a redwood forest, and that's not me. Somebody asked, is that you? No, it's not. Look at those trees. Some of them got tall, so it goes over 360 feet tall. They're massive trees. Well, here's the amazing amazing part about these trees. If you didn't learn this when you went on a tour of Yosemite or up in that area, sequoias, have you ever wondered how these giant sequoia trees can withstand high winds for hundreds, even thousands of years and remain upright despite the fact that their roots, on average, only go six feet into the ground. I have a tree, little cray myrtle tree, whose roots will go deeper than that. The roots of a, of a giant sequoia will only go, on average, six to eight feet in the ground. That's not enough to keep a tree like that upright, so how do they do it? They have no taproot, no real deep taproot. Do you know how they do it? It's because the roots from one tree will spread out over an acre of land. So one tree roots overlaps another tree's roots. One comes over them and they intertwine with one another and they hold each other up. That's amazing. God gave us a picture of unity. In sequoia trees. So what, what, what do we do? What do we need to do? Brothers and sisters, we need 
to grow sequoia groves in our homes and in our church. We need to bear one another's burdens like those roots overlapping. We need to hold up one another in intercessory prayer. We need to practice mutual love. We need to encourage one another daily in the scriptures. We need to share our mutual joys and sorrows. We need to remind one another of the hope that will never disappoint us. And we need to work together for the glory of God. All right? Let's do it.